Kayforth Butterfield at the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI, and this is In AI We Trust. Hello, Kay, so nice to see you. Nice to see you too, Miriam. Um, tell me about your week. I think you're going to be talking to regulators, and that couldn't actually be better than we talk about that today because we're going to talk to a regulator in our podcast all a bit from the UK, whereas I know you were talking to uh, regulators in the US. Yes, you are correct, Kay. And it is a nice theme of the week on, on regulating AI and, and helping and listening to government bodies who are working on this issue. Uh, I am looking forward to talking with the SEC chair and commissioners and members of the IEC later this week. And I know I share your sentiments um, that we are just so delighted that more and more lawmakers are, and regulators are starting to have this conversation, are starting to understand the way that AI can and will impact the, their work and those that they are overseeing. Uh, and the more clarity we can get, the faster, I think, better off for constituents, better off for companies. Um, yeah, so a conversation I'm very much looking forward to having. In addition to this conversation we're about to have with Member of Parliament in the UK, Darren Jones. Absolutely. And um, I think that, well, I hope that Darren will help us to really understands the level of difficulties that um, that regulators or legislators have when they're um, thinking about this general purpose technology, artificial intelligence. So, shall we dive in and talk to Darren? Let's do it. Today, we are delighted to be joined by Darren Jones, who serves as a member of parliament in the UK, representing Bristol Northwest. Darren is the founder and chairman of the Institute of AI, a global coalition of AI-focused legislators. Like Equal AI, he is also a member of the World Economic Forum Global AI Action Alliance. Darren chairs the House of Commons Business, Energy, and Industrial Strategy Committee and sits on the National Security Strategy Joint Committee. He has chaired the Parliamentary Technology Information and Communications Forum, the Commission on Technology Ethics, and Labor Digital. He's also been a member of the Science and Technology Select Committee. A lawyer by training prior to serving in the House of Commons, Darren was legal counsel at BT Group and before that, technology, media, and communication solicitor at Bond Dickinson. Darren, thank you so much for joining us today. We are so looking forward to hearing your deep insights on AI policy. Thanks so to start, can you just tell us a little bit about how you came to be interested in responsible AI and how this is become primary focus for Okay, thanks for the introduction and for having me on. I rather enjoyed that you described the network of legislators as a network of AI legislators. I can confirm we are not artificially intelligent legislators. Uh, we are merely legislators interested uh, in AI, but maybe that will happen uh, in the future. Um, so as you said, I was a technology lawyer by training, and so I've been involved in the technology space my whole professional career. And when I came to the House of Commons uh, in 2017, um, I thought I would see what that meant uh, from the perspective of being a legislator. Um, and to be honest, there weren't many parliamentarians who were working in the technology space. And so what that meant was that I could lead a lot of the 
policy debates here in the House of Commons um, and kind of push the agenda forward. Um, one of the things I wanted to do was to have more of an international discussion. Um, but again, that didn't really exist. There are some international networks of parliamentarians, uh, like the Interparliamentary Union. Um, uh, the OECD had started to do some work in that space. Um, uh, there's the Council of Europe, for example, for countries involved with the um, European Convention on Human Rights. Um, but none of them were really uh, focused predominantly on technology. It was more traditional issues around defense and security. Um, and so it wasn't necessarily the right legislators in the right meetings. And so that's why a few years ago now, I basically just wrote to legislators around the world who I thought might be interested to talk about these issues, found there was a lot of interest. And since then, through the Institute of AI, have been part of these discussions internationally um, and locally here in the, in the UK. Thank you for catching us up on where you've been with AI and otherwise. And given your vantage point, it would be great to know, big picture, what do you think are some of the greatest threats to your constituents and our society as a whole with regard to artificial intelligence? And again, given your unique vantage point, what do you think some of the greatest challenges are for lawmakers when it comes to ensuring the development of responsible artificial intelligence? Two big questions. Uh, the first question on what are the greatest threats? I mean, these are pretty well developed debates now, certainly in advanced developed economies. Uh, we know that it's uh, a risk, but also a huge opportunity for people in respects of work um, and how their jobs are going to change. A risk because actually if public policy doesn't keep up in helping people to adapt new skills and uh, contribute to their businesses in different ways, then you might end up with people losing their jobs and not having the opportunity to take advantage of new jobs. Um, we know that there's a huge risk um, uh, in the security space and national security where we need to think about critical national infrastructure, um, but also our capabilities uh, militarily, um, uh, uh, which obviously at the moment is um, a very live issue, um, and which is very difficult internationally. Maybe we can talk about that more if you'd like to later. Um, but we also know there's a huge opportunity in the delivery of our public services uh, to improve the user experience, to reduce cost, especially for countries like mine in the UK, where we have an aging population and declining tax revenues, but very high demand for public services, um, and therefore a risk that if we don't adopt these technologies in the right way, that actually we end up with public services that end up failing uh, or collapsing as opposed to meeting the demand of our citizens in a way which works for them, but also for the taxpayer. And then for legislators and lawmaking, the risk, as always, but very particularly on this type of issue, is how our often very old institutions and institutional processes can keep up with the pace of change. Um, we think how much change has happened in the economy, in the technology sector, just in the last few years. And then you look at, you know, where I work in the House of Commons, and we're still looking at rules that we developed in, you know, 18 something or other. Um, and so how we horizon scan and understand the cutting edge of technology translate that not just into the opportunities for our country, but understand the potential risks, and then really understand how legislation, regulation, the use of public funds or public regulators and entities needs to fit in that in an agile way. Um, the risk, and it's a risk we're living now, is that we're not doing that well enough. Um, and that means that the risks are heightened, but also we miss the opportunities that come with it. So, Darren, you talked about um, being better able to serve citizens with AI. So, 
um, having looked at the threats, what are you actually most excited about with regard to AI and its potential benefits for society? I have to say I'm enormously excited about so many different things because we know that AI is a general purpose technology that can radically, radically transform the way we deliver public services. Um, I don't want to give too much away of a draft speech I'm working on for a few, few months' time, but you know, imagine a classroom where every child was being delivered a unique version of the national curriculum that was uh, meeting their needs at their point in their learning journey, where if children have additional learning needs, that actually the technology is able to help them to understand and advance in a way where you don't necessarily have to pay for extra teaching staff to work one-to-one with a member, with one of your pupils. You know, where pupils are coming in and, uh, you know, their desks are IT-enabled in a way that means the teacher is actually delivering a personalised educational experience for 30 children in the classroom. But then when the teacher then needs to be able to understand how to use that technology and understand the data and be able to deliver the content, um, you know, huge opportunity for young people, but also for educational outcomes in our country. Imagine in the delivery of healthcare, you know, your ability, uh, and this is sometimes controversial, but to be able to see your GP quickly uh, with a video conference um, instead of having to wait weeks for an appointment face-to-face um, or, or being able to make sure that the delivery of care in the community um, is facilitated in a way that means you get things much more quickly and much more on demand for reduced cost than having to use traditional face-to-face services. Um, there are lots of other examples. The, the justice system, the ability to deal with consumer complaints or the small claims court. There are lots of public services, the role of community policing, the ability to report crime and have a conversation with your community crime leaders, uh, sorry, police leaders. There are lots of examples where AI can very radically modernize and transform the delivery of public services, which will vastly improve the user experience and the outcomes we want to achieve, whilst also, I think, reducing cost, um, which is a significant, um, a significant demand, certainly for a country like the UK. Well, we definitely want to further on that thread, both to get a further glimpse into the, these wonderful opportunities that are inspiring you. I love the idea of the personalized AI-enabled classroom, um, but also each of the examples you gave uh, bring to mind certain challenges, you know, ensuring that we have Wi-Fi across the board so that children have equitable access to this wonderful new technology. Predictive policing sounds great. Certainly, it presents efficiencies. However, uh, as we've seen, can way too often present racist outcomes and uh, discriminatory outcomes in all sorts of ways. So um, leads me to think about regulation. And um, what the nice thing today is that in general, we talk with our guests about hypotheticals, what they would advise politicians. And today we're fortunate enough to be able to ask someone directly who can influence these laws and policies. But before we get into the specifics, I'd love to ask you a step back. What do you think is the role of government, the legislature, parliament in particular? Uh, What role should you all be playing in regulating artificial intelligence? Why is regulation necessary? So there are two things, I think. One one is the horizon scanning piece and the understanding and being part of the discussion um, in a facilitative way as opposed to a restrictive way with you know, founders, entrepreneurs, technologists, investors. Um, I think we should be more actively around the table trying to understand 
what the cutting edge of these technology applications are, many companies, especially the big brands, um, will often self-censor their own innovations because of the risk or the fear of regulatory kind of backlash that might affect their brand. Whereas actually we want countries and our the businesses and innovators in our countries to really push the cutting edge. So we kind of need to be around the table more from the beginning. And I think if we do that, the role that regulation can then play is twofold. First, it can try to tackle some of the obvious issues at the start. Uh, we have an online safety bill that started in the House here. We're looking at how social media companies can uh, better reduce uh, harmful content online. One of the underlying principles of that is that you have to think about safety by design at the start of the process, not retrofitting trust and safety at the end of the process. Imagine if we had that approach for lots of different types of technologies where we worked with those um, coders and developers to think about that properly from the start. And the second thing is then to think about what we call regulatory sandboxes, which work quite well for financial services in the UK, where we say, look, we really want you to innovate. We understand there are risks. But come and work with us. We'll create a space, which is what we call the sandbox, where you can try on new technologies. We'll work together in understanding the risks. You're not going to get fined um, or penalized or criminalized for your activity, but we're going to work it through together and build kind of innovation-friendly regulation that means that you know we're delivering on behalf of the people that we represent, but also facilitating innovation instead of them happening kind of um, uh, separate from each other and then having to retrofit a lot of these things in the future. Thank you, Darren. So as all three of us on this podcast are lawyers, we can't avoid the substance of the law. And um, so we wondered if you could tell us a little bit about any AI legislation you've worked on thus far and what you hope to achieve in AI legislation going forward. We'd also be really interested in hearing about laws that you've actually opposed. For instance, you've voiced concerns about the UK Data Protection Act, which became law back in 2018, shortly after you joined Parliament, and the exceptions that it carved out of GDPR. How have those concerns played out in the years since the bill became law? Good questions. So I suppose the, the first question to give you some kind of uh, up-to-date examples uh, would probably be at the pre-legislative scrutiny that we've just done on the online safety bill. So uh, it doesn't happen with every bill, but the government agreed that Parliament would be able to look at the government's first draft of the online safety bill, which is, as I said earlier, how we regulate um, largely social media platforms, but other platforms that allow user-to-user -user communications, similar to the European version of the Digital Safety Act. Um, and so we were allowed to look at the first draft, take some evidence and report back recommendations, and we're expecting the government to come forward with its amended draft in the next couple of weeks for it to start its proper process. Now, some of the principles in that are, are, are AI-relevant, and they were around um, audit, um, uh, reporting and transparency and then enforcement um, and the relationship between a regulated company and a regulator. And some of the principles that we put into this uh, report for government uh, would apply in different settings. So the idea is that if you are using um, algorithmic systems or artificial intelligence systems uh, to be able to um, come to certain decisions, uh, whether it's about what you see or whether you get a financial product or whether you're allowed to be recruited for a particular job, um, 
that a regulator ought to be able to come in and ask you to explain how that system works, to look at how the data that's been put into the system um, has been uh, uh, kind of cleansed and checked and has been used for training to make, you know, for example, avoiding uh, biases that might come up in the data sets that you use, um, and really just to understand how the nuts and the bolts work. And an important principle there was that, one, a regulator ought to be given the authority to come in and have a look. Two, that a company has to allow the regulator to come in and have a look. Three, that can be done in a way that is commercially confidential. There's a relationship of trust between the regulator and the company. So it can't be a black box because it's proprietary. You still have to be able to have this discussion. Um, and that three, there are then enforcement powers where if you are breaking a law, um, and by the way, most of our existing laws are actually fine. They just need to be applied in an online setting. Uh, that there is an escalation framework in which you can, you know, take that take that forward. Um, so that's an important principle in the context of online safety, which could be applied in lots of other settings where we're thinking about AI systems. Um, in terms of where I've been critical of government, um, I've been critical. I think one of the criticisms I made in the Data Protection Act was around. Um, biometric technologies. Um, I brought forward a private piece of legislation in the last session, which originally was about forensic services and biometric services. The government, um, essentially, the government has to support a private bill, otherwise it doesn't get through. So they told me to take out the biometrics bit and they would support the forensics bit on the agreement that they were going to bring forward their own new legislation around biometrics. And interestingly, the government in the UK has taken the view that you can be technology agnostic as long as you focus on the data. And so they've done a, stress, a consultation, um, which they need to report on soon, about how the law that applies to data might protect people um, irrespective of the particular technology, whether it's auto-facial recognition or other types of biometric technologies. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how that actually works in practice. And so far, I've been critical of government on that basis because there's not been a huge amount of clarity about how it would really protect people um, against, um, you know, built-in biases or uh, an imbalance of power between the police and certain communities and, and so on and so forth. You know, as you're talking about the specific policies, I realize there's a need for us to go back and forth on the macro and the micro. Um, you know, you're talking about different parts of government, how they're working together. And I'm realizing, uh, as we all know, structures really come to play here, how things are set up and why. I'm curious about how you have your structure set up in place in Parliament to handle technology and AI conversations. Um, you know, I, I, for instance, realize you're on the House of Commons, the Parliamentary Technology Information and Communications Forum, the Commission on Technology Ethics and Labor Digital. Uh, curious about how these bodies are formed. If those are the right bodies, does there need to be a different body to handle the problems as you're seeing them? I noticed also you said we have laws on the books that just need to be applied. Where should we make sure that's happening? That's something that is consistently coming up in our conversations. Is that a function of uh, certain bodies that need to be aware of this and, and making that happen? Um, what would you propose if you were to have an idealistic uh pen that that could redraft or add to what you have now so in the uk system or the westminster system silos within departments is a is a long-running problem across lots of different policy areas and i suppose my frustration on the technology piece generally ai as a general purpose technology is that you know it, 
it's an issue that's for every department, whether you're in the Home Office, the Ministry of Defence, the Foreign Office, the Business Department, uh, you know, the Transport Department, the Health Department, you know, it applies to everybody. But what we tend to have is that we have a minister um, for often technology generally in, in our Department for Digital culture, media, and sport. Um, uh, and sometimes they're kind of a tech evangelist, sometimes they're not. Um, we once had a minister in the cabinet office, which is supposed to be the kind of coordinating department for all of the other departments, who was quite good on this. But ministers move and change quite a lot. And so their kind of amount of energy ebbs and flows. And so you can't, I don't think, rely on an individual minister's um, understanding capacity or energy. You need an institutional framework that kind of forces you to, to deal with this properly. And we don't have a, we don't have an answer in the UK. We've not found a way for that to happen. The Prime Minister here has set up uh, a new science and technology council, uh, which is run from Downing Street. And in theory, that's going to coordinate these activities better across all of the departments. It's just too early yet to know whether that's going to work or not, but watching it carefully. In terms of the bodies that you mentioned, um, there are lots of ways to engage in, in Parliament. So the, the Parliamentary Technology Forum is a way for industry to come in and talk to members of Parliament and also peers in the House of Lords, the equivalent of our Senate, uh, just not elected here, um, and so that we can understand kind of what's going on in the quote-unquote real world. Uh, Labour Digital does exactly the same, but within the Labour Party. So there's a vehicle for trying to understand what's what's going on. And then we have our select committees, which are a part of our parliamentary system, which are cross-party and are tasked by MPs to kind of deep dive into certain issues. Now, we have a science and technology committee uh, that's that's allowed to go anywhere in government in terms of scrutiny, and they do a great job, but there's a lot of science and a lot of tech across the whole of government. Um, and then you have... Department, committees like mine, um, where you end up sharing responsibility. And the risk here is that things often fall between the cracks. So the UK's AI strategy um, is co-owned between the business department and the Department for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport. Um, but the Committee for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport decided not to scrutinise the AI strategy. The Science and Technology Committee is busy doing lots of other things and so didn't have the capacity to do it. And so essentially the government published this AI strategy, but nobody on the parliamentary side had picked it up to scrutinise it. And so um, I'm doing it, um, which I'm, a, I'm allowed to do. Um, but to be honest, I kind of thought someone else was going to do it, which is why we didn't do it at the point it was published. So you've got to be a bit careful because our own structures on the parliamentary side sometimes result in things falling between the cracks in the same way as the government side. And I think you've just got to try and build your networks and keep having the discussions to try and make the, the best of it. Okay, Darren, it's something that we hear a lot uh, about these silos in government wherever you are in the world. And so that brings me back to the Institute about AI that we talked about earlier being this network of legislators. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what sort of legislators have you recruited uh, from where? And what have you actually accomplished so far? So to start with, we had legislators who were basically just a bit like me, who were a bit geeky about technology. Um, but one thing that we realised early on, and this is something I always kind of advise people talking about technology policy to think about, is instead of talking about the technology, talk about the outcome. Um, and so we found that we got many, many more legislators involved if we were talking about, uh, you know, give, I'll give you a UK example, 
during the COVID pandemic, exam results for young people were decided by an algorithmic system uh, using data about their past performance, as opposed to the normal sitting in a school hall and doing the exam yourself. And that actually, there was some biases in the data between pupils who were from public funded schools and from private funded schools, which exacerbated some inequalities and in outcomes. Suddenly, lots of legislators were saying, well, hang on a second. What's an What's an algorithm? Who designed that? Where did the data come from? Was there any human oversight of that? How do we deal with errors or mistakes that we perceive to be errors or mistakes? Because these have significant consequences for young people. Suddenly, people were much more interested to talk about AI and tech, but really because they were talking about educational outcomes. The same for a decision on where we should build more houses. Um, it, it was, again, a, a system that was designed, which would decide where the best places were to build houses. And perhaps no surprise to me as a member of parliament from a city location actually there's lots of space in the countryside uh it's not always green belt maybe that's a good place to build houses but then all of the mps for rural communities start saying well hang on i don't want a thousand houses being built in my constituency who decided this what's the data that went into it what's the human oversight and so we ended up getting lots of other legislators interested when we talked about outcomes as opposed to technology in terms of where do they come from, um, we have two uh, kind of themes which we are constantly trying to push back on. One, we are largely English speaking, um, and that's because we don't really have the capacity for translation. And so um, uh, that's just because we're an informal network. We don't have a, a budget or uh, kind of any facilities. Um, the OECD, for example, I know has been doing some good work in this space and they have the facilities in-house to do with translation. So you can go to some places, but for our network, you have to be English speaking. Um, and the second um, uh, kind of major demographic is that our legislators largely come from uh, kind of Western or Westernized advanced economies uh, who are interested in the kind of pretty advanced innovation uh, R&D kind of space. And so, you know, Europe, uh, America, Canada, Australia, uh, some of the Nordic countries, New Zealand, Japan, you know, those types of countries are the countries where we find that legislators are more involved or engaged in this debate. And we do try as best we can to bring other people into the mix. We've had some success in countries in South America. Um, we've had a couple of legislators from countries in Africa, um, but we're very conscious there are obvious gaps in the legislators that we're speaking to, which is why we also work uh, with the United Nations Office of the Tech Envoy, because they recognize that problem, not just in our network, but in other networks and are trying to uh, facilitate a, a more global discussion, especially the global south and non-English speaking through the UN um, functions. Well, picking up on that thread, we likewise really want to learn from practices around the globe, whether they are rooted in AI or otherwise, and given your extensive experience with legislators across the globe and the OECD AI Observatory, I'm sure you've seen a lot about how different societies are regulating, attempting to regulate, approaching AI. First, do you think there should be an international standard for countries, companies, people to follow uh, as guiding principles in dealing with artificial intelligence? And also, we're curious, what are some of the differences you've seen along the way of how different governments are handling their approach to AI and which of those are models that we should all learn from? Great questions. I mean, I, I would love there to be um, a kind of international baseline in terms of standards. Um, but as is probably obvious, that's quite difficult 
to achieve. I mean, we we had some roundtables on this quite early on. You know, where do you look for that to happen? There's obviously some standard setting organisations, but we spoke to the uh, the ITU, for example, at the UN, the Telecommunications Union, and we had their Secretary General come in and talk to us. Um, they've set standards before um, in terms of the internet, of course, um, uh, but they don't have a mandate to do it for other things like AI. Um, and there was a really interesting discussion about how that might might work. And also, if you're trying to get every country in the world, pretty much, uh, to agree to the standard, is it effective if it's so kind of diluted to be so low level um, that you then end up still with very kind of different outcomes in different in different places? So I would like I would love us to get to that. Um, but it's not easy, especially in the military um, dual use space, um, which is very difficult. Um, uh, but in terms of how different countries operate, the, the thing that I also find interesting is in the UK, uh, we talk a lot about AI ethics. Um, and, you know, ethics from a legislator's perspective is really difficult um, because ethics mean different things in different countries. And sometimes that's okay. Um, and sometimes it's not okay. But from my perspective, it's not okay. And so I, I don't know how you resolve the fact that ethics mean different things in different um, different countries in a way that would lead you to being able to set a kind of ethical standard um, uh, that would work in every different jurisdiction or culture or, 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 or kind of setting. The, the one thing, though, that I do um, find hopeful is that even in countries where we approach regulation differently, um, so, you know, let's just look at, you know, my bit of the globe, I suppose, you know, you've got the European Union, which is very regulatory first, very detailed, codified kind of um, regulation that tries to anticipate problems and deal with it at the start, which is why it takes a long time for legislation to get through. Uh, but they're very pleased with how GDPR has set a global standard on data protection and privacy, for example. You've then got the UK, uh, which tends to be more a little lighter, it tends to be more principles-based, it tends to say, well, let's not try to solve every problem now, let's try to understand what the problems are that exist and deal with those, and if we need to come back, we can do things later. And then you look at the US, which at federal level is very difficult um, and often is even kind of lighter touch uh, than the UK. Um, so you would think that we would end up taking very radically different approaches, but actually there's lots of points of agreement um, about how we should approach legislation, not just in terms of safety, but in terms of competition in digital markets, for example, and quite a lot of collaboration between our counterparts in DC, London and Brussels, uh, and increasingly actually Australia, New Zealand, uh, and other like-minded countries. So even though there are some obvious problems about international standards and ethics and military dual-use technologies, there are also some examples where you can see an opportunity for global collaboration that would deal with probably huge parts of the market around developing technologies and services that could work in the interests of people and the use of responsible AI um, in a way where if we work together uh, collaboratively, uh, we could probably have a positive impact. Well, given what you're saying, it seems like we need to ask the follow-up to continue on the thread. You mentioned earlier that uh, some of the work you're doing is in some way facilitating the international crisis uh, underway. And I'm curious uh, if you wanted to say more about that, if there's more you could say about the work that you're doing that is um, impacting uh, the, the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. So we, we haven't deep dived into military 
use cases yet, um, but there's a there's a demand from legislators, I think, to do so. There's an interest. The United Nations, as you would appreciate, have a task force uh, that was trying to look at the development of autonomous and artificially intelligent weapon systems. Um, it hasn't made that much progress, really. And I'm afraid the UK is part of the blocker on that. Um, so many countries wanted to say, for example, that we would agree internationally not to develop fully autonomous weapon systems. You know, the idea that a drone and a machine learning algorithm would be able to decide for itself whether to attack something or not. One example. These technologies already exist, of course. Um, uh, but the UK um, uh, and some other countries point out that um, countries such as China, uh, Russia to a certain extent, um, are already developing these technologies. You have huge capacity to do so with great speed. And that actually, if NATO countries don't try to keep up with that, then there'll be a, an imbalance in technologies, which will be a real concern uh, for military capability, even from a defensive perspective, uh, as opposed to a use of weapons offensively. But what that means, of course, is that you then don't get to an agreement on stopping the development and you end up in probably an escalation of the application of AI to these settings where many of us would rather those capabilities didn't exist at all in the first place. Um, and look, we need to talk about that and we need to bring people together to talk about it and try to find a way through the balances, the opportunities and the risks. Uh, at the moment, uh, it's a bit of a stored discussion. Thank you for that, Darren. And, and you know, you've talked about so many things. There's so much still to be done. Um, so... We'd like to close the show by asking you the question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, if you had a magic wand to request just one wish to achieve responsible AI, what would that wish be? I think it would be uh, for, and I know this is very difficult at the moment given the circumstances, but given how we can come together as a world to talk about climate change, wouldn't it be great if all of our world leaders were able to come together and talk in an informed, credible and coherent way about how we should collaborate on how AI is going to transform pretty much everything um, and set some basic principles or work programs about how we're going to collaborate internationally through the UN? Uh, I would love for that to happen. As I say, given the current circumstances, I know it, it can't. But if we can do it on climate, and it's right that we do it on climate, why can't we do it for AI? Cheers thank to that. You. Yes, what a perfect place to land this discussion. Darren, thank you so much for your time, for the important work you're doing, and for sharing your insights with us today. Great to be with you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Well, Kay, another really interesting, thoughtful discussion. So much there, I thought, that gave us insight about the specifics of what's happening in the UK, but just as many, if not many more, observations and lessons that apply across the global stage. What were some of the big takeaways for you? Well, I think for me, it, one of the things was the silos that you talked about, how, how difficult it is for legislators to navigate all these different departments that they have under them and, um, and bring some consensus of thought to, to them all. I, I imagine that resonates with everybody who has ever worked in government anywhere in the world, whatever whatever stripe that government is. 
and you know how much of an impediment this is to to doing good work in this area. So that was one thing. And then I think the other thing is just really, you know, you have to be interested in this subject. Um, and that's how he started out. But he still, it still felt to me as if he was sort of dragging a bunch of other people with him. And gradually there's more interest in uh, amongst legislators around the world in this topic. And so that was the other thing that stood out to me, the fact that he had created the Institute of AI simply so that they could have those international conversations amongst legislators. It's just so important and so really, um, really excited to see that happen. Yeah, I, I think it really is important to think about the structures that enable the policy and the change and the conversations that need to happen. Um, you know, struck by his uh, comments, how many of them were similar to wherever in the world you might be having these conversations, granted, among a well, uh, highly developed country, um, where he's talking about the current laws on the books that need to be applied to AI. I think that is a consistent theme, one that we should continue to think about and talk about, um, as well as his hope that there would be international standards. I think there is not an international body or company that would not like for that to happen. But I think also everybody realizes how very challenging it will be for us to get to that place where we need to be. Um, I like how he's thinking about risk and opportunity of AI. And I, I appreciate, respect and sympathize, agree with his perspective that if policy does not keep up, we will fail the people. You know, I, I know there's the World Economic Forum report talking about the uh, tens of millions, 70 million jobs that will be lost from AI uh, overtaking the positions, but another 70 net million across the globe that can be gained um, if we do this properly, if we get people prepared. And it doesn't mean everyone needs to be a computer scientist or coder. It means they need to be able to participate in the future economy that is an AI economy. So I'm so glad he's thinking about that and I'm also thinking a lot about what he talked about building the regulations in it proactively, the safety by design, as opposed to retrofitting. Uh, I think that's such an important perspective and something that I am rooting him on for. And, and I hope others will collaborate and ensure we are able to realize that goal. Absolutely. And and I think rooting for him to succeed is, is the the absolute way of us thinking about it, you know, that that we need thoughtful regulators or legislators, and they they need to talk to one another, you know, that we come up with really good legislation and um, legislation that enables the best of AI, but also obviously meets the needs of um, some of dealing with some of the risks of AI. On the, on the point about uh, what is AI ethics and what does it mean to different people around the world, that was certainly something I met when I first started doing this work. And I think one of the ways that we have been able to think about this is if you just take the word ethics out and use responsible or trustworthy, it actually helps people to come together 
in a way that ethics was actually, I think, driving this apart. I think that's so true. Isn't it funny and ironic that ethics, which is meant to show respect for your neighbor, can actually be tearing us apart based on our different definitions. So hopefully language can facilitate that opportunity to move forward. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There was a great, great conversation with Sarah and I enjoyed it immensely. Same here. I look forward to our next one. Subscribe to or download our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. To learn more or get involved, visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible.